Did you think because it's not an illegal drug, it must be fine? Yeah, 100%. 100%. Yeah, and even like there's periods now where you have this elitism of, you know, you're a pharmaceutical drug addict, so yeah, yeah. it's not as bad, but it's all the same behaviours. That's Nick Stacey. His life was torn apart by an opioid addiction and it's taken more than a decade for him to piece himself back together. As millions of people do, Nick started taking prescription drugs to cope with the pain of a shocking sports injury. And as he endured surgery after surgery, use turned to abuse. They put me on Stillnox, not knowing anything about it. I went with it. Nick lost his marriage to addiction and was diagnosed with cancer soon after, all while trying to raise two young children and hold down a job. In the face of terrible adversity, Nick's found a way to survive, put one foot in front of the other and make life worth living. Welcome to Young Blood, an award-winning podcast on a mission to make the mental health of young men a top priority. My name's Callum McPherson, I'm a journalist, and this is our platform to open up and share stories of what we've been through because we're not alone. Let's do it. Trigger warning, if you find anything spoken about in today's episode distressing, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. Nick, what kind of kid were you growing up? Uh, that's a good question. I guess I grew up in a, a small town. So that was a bit of a case of big fish. How small? Small pond. Only about a thousand people. Yeah. Overall, the town was quiet, but yeah, I guess um, I was quite outgoing. Like, played a lot of sport and um, was okay at it. Good enough to, you know, people think you're cool. That's sort of how it works in the country. Yeah. Did when I was growing up anyway. So that was your identity early on? 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Played, yeah, multiple sports and. Not much else to do, right? Really. No, if you didn't play sport, you people didn't sort of know about you. That yeah. was, yeah, that's just how the town runs. And you had some natural ability? Yeah, I was had a little bit, yeah. Yeah, I was particularly, oh, tennis was my best sport. Like I went on to coach when I came to Adelaide and my biggest strength playing footy was my mouth. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I was uh, pretty good on the lip. Not quite an Eddie Betts goal sneak, but yeah, got profiled as a, that sort of small mid forward my whole career. So. A few highlights. Uh, well, I like to, to tell people about them, but there's not that many. Yeah, no. Didn't have video back in those days. No, no. Yeah, I think, unfortunately, my brother, brother's two years older. He um, he took the highlights package. He was a bit taller and could jump higher. And yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. He got all the, uh, left all the attention. All the nice stuff. Yeah. So I was sort of Chris's brother. Yeah. You've yeah. moved out of that shadow since then? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely have. Yeah. 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 He's, um, you know, I grew up on a farm and. Which is just interesting for someone who had no sort of interest in farming growing up. Like I, all I wanted to do was go to the town. Like yeah, whereas you know my older brother was probably a bit more drawn to you know farm. So did you feel a bit trapped then? It definitely fit out of place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know because farms are they're generational really. So you know, was there my, an expectation that you were going to do that? Never a forced expectation, yeah. but it's kind of, as a kid, you put that sort of pressure on yourself, like, oh, should I be doing, you know, carrying on the family tradition of farming and mm -hmm. that, you know, goes back to three or four generations. What did you want to do? Growing up, I just wanted, I wanted to do something, you know, sort of around sport. Like, I wasn't quite sure what it was. Like, the player agent thing really appealed to me. Um, as I've got older, like, yeah, well-being in the sports, sports sort of place, and just the general um, population. Like that's sort of something I've become quite passionate about. Yeah, but yeah. I guess growing up, just anything to do with sport. Yeah, 
I thought you know only a sports store would be cool, but now I look at that and go, Jesus, oh God, I don't own a sports store. But um, yeah. So how did sports factor into your identity when you were a kid and then young adult? As I sort of found out, like it's that that was my identity. Like even now, like ten years post, you know, injury, which we get to, um, I just I struggle to name what my identity is. So really, it was that's you know I was Nick. Stacey, I was okay at sport and that provided social, you know, opportunities for me and didn't sort yeah. of have much time for much else or think much else about not really other nah. aspects of life. No, nah, no. Nah. Like I mean, when I got to late high school I studied quite hard and got, got a good result and stuff, you know, considering that country schools aren't exactly filled with the best or most qualified teachers. Yeah, you're one of the smart ones. <laughs> well, yeah, especially for guys. Like, I think we only had five guys in that class in year 12. So you probably wasn't too hard to stand out, but yeah, did okay. So And that yeah. meant that you went off to uni after school? Yeah, it did, yeah. I was always planning to go to uni. I'm not sure if it's still around. We, got, we used to get bonus points back then. Um, So I, I actually changed my mind on what course I wanted to do based on my score. Yeah. Um, so I had sort of sports science, human movement as number yeah. one. But you did better than that. Bonus points. So, then, so I thought, oh, geez, yeah, yeah. I, might as well, I better use these bonus points because yeah. <laughs> um, that's what they're there for. Yeah. And yeah, went into uh, radiography. Yeah. What which, was you thinking around that? It just sounded impressive. Or? Oh, I think just mate, uh, maybe um, you heard they make a, a lot of, of a job and money. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And then once I started, it was like four guys and ninety six. Uh-huh. And that was a bad thing? That was a good thing about the course. <laughs> That's why I lasted eight weeks. But um, no, I just, you know, they started talking about the practical side of it and I thought, I just can't, like, take x-rays all day every day. It's not me. Yeah. No, I get that. Yeah. I, did, I did law straight out of school because I got good grades as well and yeah. I wasn't really interested in it but wasn't sure what to do. Actually, funnily enough, the school counsellor said, oh, you should be a journalist, which I did end up doing. <laughs> but I did law because people were like, oh, that's a good degree that people do, I guess, you know, good general degree. Yeah. And then actually doing it, I was like, this is just boring me shitless, like yeah, the yeah, funny reality enough. of it. But also you realise when you're there that there's all these other people who are really into it. You're like, yeah, I shouldn't be here. Yeah, so, yeah. I found that. Um, yeah. yeah, so People you, that had already pre-studied and stuff. and you're like, yeah. 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 So you'd moved to Adelaide for that and then you dropped it. Dropped out. Dropped out, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sort of tried to find a, a job, but I, that was the first time I actually admitted it, like I was struggling with my mental health. Um, admitted it to who? Yourself? Uh, admitted it to mum and dad, first of all, yeah, yeah. So I was down here sort of trying to find work, like Rowan Jarman back in the day. Yeah, I remember Rowan Jarman. They put me through four four trials and didn't get a job. Oh, that's a bit rough. Yeah, which is actually illegal, I think. Anyway, yeah, it is now, for sure. <laughs> yeah. It's a bit late anyway, to, to go I'm after. not going to come after Rowan Jarman <laughs> What'd your yeah. mum and dad say? Oh, they were just worried about me, you know. Like, uh, I think back then, admitting you had depression and, like, this, I'm talking, like, lying in bed all day, depression. Like, it wasn't, I feel a bit flat here and there. Like, yep. I was really struggling. And it sort of had come off the back of, uh, you know, like a, a relationship breakdown, you know, young love. But, As it often does, yeah. Yeah, um, but it was a bit more serious because the you know the girl I was seeing was she was quite unwell herself like mm. and you know to the point where she hospitalised several times and trying to support someone through that while you you know early uni or going through year twelve and that was it was probably made me grow up pretty quick. So how did that impact you when you reflect on it? It's definitely like it's a, impacts my anxiety 
and I guess it just it elevated everything. Like hypervigilance? Yeah, yeah, pretty much hypervigilant. Like my, I guess, thoughts on a relationship at that point were you do absolutely everything you can, even if it's one-way traffic. Like, you know, if you get nothing out of the relationship and then you still keep doing it, like, and that's pretty much what drove me into the ground. But so you got yeah. used to that and burned yourself out? Pretty much, yeah, yeah. Okay. Like, I did... Yeah, I did burn myself out and, you know. Because uh, your girlfriend at the time was suffering with an eating disorder. Is yeah. That right? Yeah. yeah. And, then and that's so was... super hard psychologically and for a partner as well because, well, very hard to understand why it's going yeah. on and what your partner that is and how you can do anything yeah. about it. It's, yeah. I mean, all you want to do is help. But as I've learned over the years, the best help you can be to someone going through something is just support because until they make the call that, you know, they need help, nothing will really change. And ironically, that's down the track. Mm. The ball's in my court with that sort of stuff. So, yeah. yeah. And yeah. so that just sort of, you got the your end of your tether dealing with that where you couldn't... It was for my own well-being. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But then you felt guilty about it. Of course, yeah. yeah I felt yeah. extremely guilty. Like, you know, someone I loved at the time and I deeply cared about seeing them just sort of fade away and just be so so sick mentally and physically it's mm. yeah it was, it was hard it was hard and then there's in a small town there's comments like you know I, I'd done something to trigger it you know or mm. I called her fat or she didn't look good in something which was never the case yeah yeah um, so there's perceptions yeah, there's as well perceptions and a few comments that were th thrown my way um, yeah. around it which and then you, you love someone and they become someone who they weren't before. Yep. And, yep. and then you later in life, you you had your own experience of that where you yeah, became exactly. that person. Too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's right. um, probably should have picked up sooner that, you know, that it was just a those role pattern, reversal. Those patterns were yeah. repeating. Yeah. Yeah. So when you were struggling when you were that young, did you try to seek any help or did your parents try to yeah. put you forward? Anyway? No, we, um, I booked in to see a psychiatrist down in Adelaide. Thinking back at the time, they put me on, they put me on still knocks, which was interesting because I was struggling to sleep a little bit and just another antidepressant. But you know, nowadays still knocks is just a, a no go. Really, why is that? Oh, it's, it can be quite highly addictive. Right. Yeah, that was kind of their first port of call, which is slightly unusual. But not knowing anything about it, I went with it and yeah. Did that help? Um. It helped put you to sleep, but there was some odd experiences. Like I got up and cleaned the house in the middle of the night, right. not knowing I'd done that. And then you do some research and people have gotten in cars and driven around. And uh -huh. Yeah, so I stopped it pretty quick. Yeah, okay. So cleaning the house is not the worst thing that could have happened. No, no. Yeah, it's probably one of the rare times I did it back then. But, um, yeah, I guess looking back, it's yeah, definitely medication. I don't. Yeah, want to touch but that was again. that was straight away. They said just take was, this, yeah. and they didn't really yeah. have a conversation with you. Pretty much, I, yeah. yeah. It said I was really struggling sleeping due to the anxiety, and I couldn't get to sleep. And then when I did get to sleep, I didn't want to sort of wake up. So mm. that was their option was to give me a sleeping tablet, which yeah, mm. and not go further into how you were feeling not really. and what you'd been through. No, nah, and... nah. yeah, yeah. And you know, I saw the psychiatrist multiple times, and never really dug that deep. But I guess looking back now, I was only willing to give away certain bits of what had gone on in yeah. my life. Um, 
and you know that was something that not until two years ago really I, everything came out that you know had happened to me when I was I was a lot younger which yeah I think I was uh, year six at the time something happened and you know holding on to that for 20 odd years is heavy when you think about it like yeah just the event itself and the flashbacks you get with it and you know it really it takes away your feeling of like feeling safe just anywhere um because you know having stuff happen in a place where you think you should be the safest is yeah it's pretty hard to pretty hard to handle and something i'm still working through now and you know it's 22 years ago sort of thing so yeah so it becomes very clear to you how that sexual abuse filters into yeah the rest of your life yeah like i i mean any traumatic event that happens particularly when you're younger definitely shapes or my, my opinion it shapes your mental health and what happens and you know but you don't know it at the time don't know at yeah. the time no but lay the foundation for every other traumatic event that happened on top it was just became heavier and heavier whereas if i just had that alone to deal with that was probably heavy enough yeah um Matt may have had something to do with why you're predisposed to addiction as well when it when it came to that yeah. point and yeah well as i've learned like addiction is um it's i think it's like 98 percent trauma based the symptom um yeah it's a symptom of you know um, people seek an escape from their life for whatever reason and usually it's trauma and you know like i've i've heard some horrific stories of things that happen to you know people when they're young and not just when they're young but you know just growing up in their teenage years and then even into adulthood like life doesn't stop and the the self-protective factor of the human mind's incredible as well how it can yeah. oppress and suppress things and then they come out later and you might have even not realized or forgotten that that happened to a degree or not allowed yourself to mm. remember it and then have it reappear yeah it's very common you know from what i've been told and uh, what i've read that you know childhood sexual abuse it's very common that it comes out about 35 to 45 in males and your ability to suppress it gets to the point where i was questioning myself whether it actually happened if i buried it that deep when eventually actually words came out of my mouth to my therapist it was like it just all hit me at once because it's just too much to cope with too much to cope with and like at the time i my therapist was very um sort of spiritual and about energy and your flow in your body and stuff and as soon as i told her i literally had blood pour out my nose like Far it was out. one of these experiences that you think you see in a movie or something and it was just you know, and to me, it was a release of just this energy, like this bad energy. It was that, that intense. Was, yeah, that intense. Yeah. And just me admitting it, that was a physical response to it, which, yeah, it was, it was pretty full on that whole hour-long session I had with her, but it felt like you know, I came out of a boxing ring when I got out. Was it so. a good thing? Yeah, yeah, it had to happen. Yeah. Yeah, it had to happen because otherwise I think I would continue to seek escape from those feelings yeah which is you know whether it's drinking or using drugs whatever it is yeah yeah whatever it is you can't yeah. can't move forward if you've exactly. got that, you that same yeah, source that's causing it. yeah 
got to face it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks for sharing that, mate. I know that's that's yeah, really so yeah, tough. It is, it's tough to talk about, but I think it's important that yeah, you know, I've, I've seen people in the news and stuff, and I just admire the bravery, like cut, coming out. Like it's yeah. yeah, it's it's not easy, but yeah, it's something I've I've had to had to do to move on with my life because yeah, that's right. You take the control back then when you, exactly. When you're finally yeah. ready to be yeah. able to F- share that. Yeah, finally realise you know you weren't at fault. Yeah, yeah, that's the most important thing. No, I admire you for doing it, mate. Mm. Tell us about the footy injury in 2011. Yeah, so my AFL career was, uh, I was thinking about nominating for the draft that year. I was only 26, but yeah, um, played country footy. Uh, used to drive back every week from the city and round one, uh, 2011, um, my brother was actually the player coach that year. I was meant to go to a wedding on the day that that happened, but had a trial game the week before and kicked a few and got a bit excited and I thought I'll play footy and then I'll just go to the wedding after and uh yeah literally it would have been two minutes into the match got tackled and just a freak injury a, a dislocation fracture of my hip which when it happened it went off like a gun like people said <laughs> they could hear it on the other side of the oval and stuff and what ensued after that was three hours of just pain like I've never felt like um they couldn't even get you to the hospital no no so yeah happened in Christabrook which is you know the hospital's not that far but issue was there's no ambulance so they rang an ambulance which actually got called out to a car accident from Port Pirie which was more urgent at the time which I sort of understood I wasn't angry about but but you're just lying there in agony they didn't communicate that they weren't coming right so eventually four grown men put me in the back of a high house and sort of sit in the back trying to hold it still and anyone who's ever dislocated something all you want to do is just like be in a spot where you're stable it doesn't hurt you're not moving around yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> you're bumping around a, dirt, a fair bit a in dirt road, oh, no. dropping out of the Shit. oval and i we felt i felt every bump and when we got to the hospital all i wanted to do i was just like just put it back in just like do whatever you do, put it back in. And they said, oh, well, we'll do it straight away, like while you're awake. And I'm like, what do you have to do? And they told me. And it's like two doctors, one end and one the other end. Like, so one would pull like up pulling, my leg. Yeah. And they'd go, I said, no, no way, you're knocking me out. Like, oh. yeah, it makes me cringe even now thinking about it. And well, I think my dad stayed in the room for it, which. So they did knock you out they and then they did it? Yeah, they did it. And, <sighs> But when I woke up, I, was, I had no pain. But, you know, um, country hospitals don't have the equipment to perform scans like, you know, yeah. we do. But there was some the serious damage, though. There was some serious damage, yeah. So, you know, got brought down by ambulance on the Monday and had a scan done. And the um, person who performed the scan, she thought I'd been in a car crash. Like, she said, like, was looking for scratches on me and... Said no, nah, I just got tackled playing footy, and they just couldn't believe it. it was like a footy accident. So it was just this freak, freak, freak accident, which changed my life. Like a, you know. Um, so you legitimately thinking you might have a shot at playing professionally before that happened? No, no, not professionally. In my dreams, I think. <laughs> okay, but it was, <laughs> but what, it, it was what you looked just, forward to doing, it was, and exactly, it was like I, what you were I, known for. And I said to, you know, I used to drive. You know, it was a six-hour round trip every week. Yeah, to drive back home and play because I love playing footy for my you know home yeah. club and anyone that play, plays footy in the country like 
But you weren't even supposed to play that day. Yeah, no, nah, I should yeah. have gone to a wedding. <laughs> should have gone to a wedding. Jeez. But, you know. Um, and so what did they say to you about your injury? And- straight away before they even done the surgery, um, the, the surgeon just came and said, you, just, you won't play sport again. Like, you won't be the same. Um, we'll do our best. They said, we'll do our best to put it back together, um, which they did at reconstruction initially. But How'd that hit you? That was the first time I'd actually cried. Like, I didn't cry from the pain. But as soon as they told me that, uh, yeah, that's what broke me. Did you believe it? I knew it was bad. I'd had enough injuries growing up. And, you know, just I think the fact there was like, it was like seven fractures or cracks or whatever, like it wasn't a... Wasn't a clean surgery, break. yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I've seen people dislocate hips in um, even at the professional level. I think Sam Day from Gold Coast did it a few years ago, just running. Uh, but he came back because there was no fracture. But yeah, the fact that there was so many fractures and yeah, it just my ability to move is taken away from me. So you know things like tennis, where there's lots of lateral movement, footy, which you all over the place, yeah. <clears throat> That was gone. And so you must have been thinking, well, who am I then? Yeah. I'd had a few, like quite a few injuries growing up, but never this severe. Um, and mum and dad's, their advice when anything happened was, um, there's people worse off. You know, we'd, and, you know it's, it's true to a degree, but the issue with it's that approach is you it? don't actually, you don't, I guess, recognise how you're feeling and what you're feeling about the whole event. Like you don't validate it. You don't, yeah, there's yeah. no validation. And it's almost like there's people are soft. So get over it, get over it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, which you can see what they're trying to do exactly. and why you're saying that. And it, that works more for some people than others. I mean, it is true. There's yeah. always someone worse off, 100%. but it's, it's all, it's all relative. You're going through it. You're, yeah. you're feeling those same feelings that anyone else would feel. Yeah. 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 And, and acknowledging, it, like, it, you know, you've just got a terrible injury yeah. and it's taken away your identity. It's a pretty big deal. Yeah. And I think it was one of the, I didn't swear at mum in a, like, aggressive way, but I more or less just said that. I said, oh, fucking hell, mum, can't you just let me feel like shit for a little bit here? Yeah. Like, and I know what they do. It's a perspective. Like, that, that whole approach is a perspective thing and it does play a part in, I guess, your recovery long term, like realizing that you know, yes, this is bad, but you know, yeah, I've, probably a bit later though. You want yeah, to not be acknowledge later, it not. first, and yeah, <laughs> not when I've just been told, you know, and I'm just trying to process the whole event really. Yeah, and if if that really is the last time you can play, then you have to go through a period of grieving, pretty much for yeah. for not being able to do what you love and and that version of yourself dying essentially. Yeah, which yeah. I never did. Yeah. yeah. And only last sort of year and a bit I've done that. Yeah, which is when you think about it, like when no one ever actually approached it like that with my therapy, like at the time. Well, I didn't really have a lot at the time, but it was only sort of recently, like my therapist said, you're allowed to grieve that part of you that you've lost. Um, Yeah. It was only then that I could actually move on from it, which... Sounds crazy because, you know, if you lose someone, you, your grief's a bit quicker than 10 years. Yeah. And so. everyone expects you to grieve that and you expect yourself yeah. to grieve losing and someone. And it does sound a bit funny, like grieving, like you losing part of your identity. But when if you go through it, anyone that goes through it, 
can understand it. Like it's, you know. And from the time the injury happened until you did allow yourself to go through that, you were just forcing that down and pushing, pushing it, it, pushing it away with without the, even knowing that that was a thing. Too. Yeah, yeah. So it was another trauma event, which I just kept suppressing, suppressing the feelings down around it. And that is obviously when my, my addiction really started because I'd never touched a painkiller, didn't know what they really were. But yeah, as soon as I woke up, they, I think they gave me... Yeah. more tablets than even you know you normally meant to because it was a pretty severe injury and straight away i i was in a good space like i was like i was ringing people and like i was happy and just relaxed which is really weird because i've just come through this horrific event where i've been you know screaming in pain and just not really he's going to survival mode when you're in that sort of space but a um, couple of painkillers and I was I was fine, which well, that's when the alarm bells should really have gone off for me. <laughs> no alarm bells going off when you're feeling that good though. No, no, no. Nah. That makes, you know, even the events that happened earlier in my life, like got rid of them, didn't think about them. Yeah, just this ultimate feeling of euphoria or relaxation or... What did they tell you about what you were taking? Thinking back, I, I, I can't remember one doctor until about four or five months in, you know, I was going to a walking clinic, but the same walking clinic, and eventually a doctor said, oh, you probably shouldn't be taking these for too long. That that was the comment. But then he gave me a script. So there was no sort of explanation around what's going to happen when you stop, why they're addictive. Did you think because it's not an illegal drug, it must be fine? Yeah, 100%. 100%. Yeah, and even like there's periods now where you have this elitism of, you know, you're a pharmaceutical drug addict, so yeah, yeah. it's not as bad, but it's all the same behaviours. Also how it's behaviors. been viewed by society as well, or certainly that there's more sympathy generally for people who are prescription yeah, yeah, drug yeah. addicts. Yeah. And probably not when you know them personally, but just in general, someone who gets hooked on something that was given to them versus someone who's sought out a drug which has that label of being so destructive. 100% right. But like you say, same result. Same result, yeah. But you're right. It's, um, there is a perception there that it's, it's not as bad, but trust me, Pretty strong when way. you get into an opioid addiction, it's, it's legal heroin, essentially. And the behaviours that come with it are all the same behaviours that any other drug addict, alcoholic goes through. It's um, basically someone else takes over your your body. It's like I wasn't there. Just all your morals go out the window. Like you yeah, conscious of only, that? No, not when you're in it. No, Are you, you're conscious to a degree, but the stronger feeling is I want to take more. Yeah, it overpowers yeah, so that, everything. You know, it's such a strong and for. Um, can only talk for me, but yeah. speaking to other addicts, it's you know, my first thought if I don't stop it, then even now, like if I have a thought about taking something, which is pretty rare nowadays, luckily, but if I don't nip it in the bud right then with tools I've been given, I'm in trouble. So it's because um, that'll grow in your mind, yeah, it, yeah, it, it'll pretty much end up with me taking something, mm. yeah, yeah, that's how. That's how strong the thoughts can be, even, you know, when you're in recovery. 
And when you're in the grip of the addiction, what you know to be right and who you'd say you want to be, that just gets quieter and quieter and further yeah. away and yeah. you just get overpowered by this monster that's controlling you. Yeah, yeah, you do. It, and, you know, probably I wasn't 100% right. Like I, I was aware of my morals. But as I said, biggest priority was let's, let's take more. Take more. Got to yeah. feed the beast. Feed, feed the beast. First thing in the morning, that was my first thought. As soon as my eyes open. Which, yeah, it's, How'd uh, you get to that point from first taking it and then how did it progress? I guess because I, I had several surgeries over, you know, a space of five or six years, which didn't help. Looking back, it, it really just gave me an excuse to ask for more. Mm. Like the pain was probably not that bad. But, you know, the pain specialists rightly at the time put me on, you know, a slow release one and then you had quick for breakthrough pain and it just builds. Like it's like these little sandcastles of how much you take, you get building and building, um, you know, from taking two slow releases a day, they increase it to three and then they increase the dose and then increase the dose of the breakthrough. Did you understand drug tolerance? and? Uh, I, I understood tolerance they, because they told me, like, it's not working as well because your tolerance is building. So I understood that part of it. Found out the hard way what withdrawal is, though, like, which was a result of me moving to Sydney and not, not being able to get any. Like, I just I wasn't aware that, you know, it was such a... Didn't even know it was that controlled. Yeah. Um, so you were on it for months straight, and then yeah, it was six, ran six out. months, I think. And, no, it was probably eight months. Sorry, eight months straight, and then moved, moved to Sydney. And um, it was the week of the first week of the Australian Open that year. I remember, and I can't, I can't really even explain with Strauder. You feel like you're dying. You feel like your bones want to rip out. Skin, it's just the most awful feeling. But you would have had no idea why that was happening. I didn't know what was happening. That's when I went on the internet and went, oh, right, okay. That's the first time I realised this is, you know, I'm basically addicted to this stuff. What did so, you, you do with that information? At the time, <laughs> nothing. I just I went through a 10-day, it would have been two weeks, two-week withdrawal. I just toughed it out. I, I still had pills there, but I, I actually threw them down in the sink, which I remember later in addiction, just thinking, why did I do that? Like, that was, that's so hey, you were freaked out. You didn't want to be an addict. I didn't, want to, I didn't want to be an addict. Like, that wasn't, no one wants to be an addict. That wasn't where I wanted to head. And I think I had just watched one documentary at the time around it, and it was in the US where it's you know rampant, but I just thought, that's, that's not me. I don't want to be that. So I just toughed out the first withdrawal. What are the symptoms of withdrawal that you had? Uh, nausea, diarrhea, restless legs are the worst. Anyone that's had restless legs, I didn't sleep. Probably didn't get any sleep for about seven or eight nights just because he rested. Did you have legs. a job? I did. Didn't go, I'm guessing. I didn't go, no. <laughs> I, I, I told him what was happening. I was just honest. Which they were supportive about, like this is, you know, I was working for Adidas at the time and I got a promotion to go to Sydney and oh. um, I've always just worked on honesty, like, yeah, you're better off, you know. That's my true morals, like mm -hmm. that's, but obviously when addiction kicks in, honesty doesn't become mm. so important. So, but at that point in time, I just, I, you know, that wasn't where I wanted to be. Mm. 
So you uh, detox two weeks, managed detox to two actually weeks. get off it. Yeah. And then you got back on it. Surgery, yeah. Yeah. I had um, basically the original surgery, they'd, they'd missed a torn labrum or something, uh-huh. which kept catching. <laughs> So right. like it was so you had like, to, you had to it was like your meniscus catching like real like yeah so yeah they had to go in and fix that and again it was um, when they gave you the the pills again part of your mind must have gone okay went back I know where this goes yep. yeah yeah but it was like oh, I've, I've missed that feeling yeah yeah and you forget how bad the withdrawal was so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but then you get to a period where you're just like, oh, geez, I don't want to go through that withdrawal again. Yeah, that's right. So you've got to stay on it. You've got to stay on it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's still something that a lot of people don't understand about drug addicts is that you're not getting high a lot of, after a while. No. Certainly when you're no. properly in addiction. You're just trying to be well. You're just trying to feel normal. Yep. And you're trying, like to, it up. you're trying to run from the, the come down or the withdrawal because it's so bad. Yeah. yeah. 100% right. Whether it's, uh, you know, alcohol, prescription, any drug, yeah, people, they forget about the come downs or, you know, psychosis if you don't sleep, yeah. stuff like that. Like, but yeah, that, that week, even now thinking of that first week of when I went through withdrawal, it makes my skin crawl. Like, it was just horrific. Absolutely horrific. Didn't have to go through it again because when I eventually came off and I, I went through a proper process with a doctor and, um, you know, and went on a maintenance program, yeah. which made withdrawal. Not just cold, cold turkey. Yeah, rather than cold turkey, it was just like, you know, manage it. And I did manage to get it. Yeah. And like today, I, I, I don't, I don't crave like a, um, a painkiller or anything like that. It's just, I've been quite lucky, I guess, in that, in that sense. But, you know, I've done a lot of work to, <laughs> Hasn't just happened like that. Yeah. 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 Athletic Greens has jumped on board as a podcast sponsor, and I'm really keen to introduce you to AG1, the one-stop shop nutritional drink that does wonders to support mental and physical health. If you're anything like me, you want to take the best possible care of your mind and body, and finding an easy method you can trust to help keep everything in peak condition sounds like the perfect tool. That's where AG1 comes in. Just one daily scoop of AG1 covers all your nutritional bases and supports long-term gut health with 75 vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, adaptogens, and a greens blend all sourced from whole food ingredients. Think of it like a cheat code to give you more energy, increase mental clarity, better sleep, and improve digestion, all while boosting your immune system. You wouldn't think mixing all those vitamins together would taste great, but AG1 is actually delicious and something to look forward to first thing in the morning that makes you feel unstoppable. You don't need to take a handful of pills or eat a massive variety of foods to tickle the boxes. Just shake up your AG1 in water, drink it down and start reaping the benefits. It saves time and energy and gives you peace of mind that you're fueling your body with the best. AG1 has been endorsed by world-renowned neuroscientist Dr. Andrew Huberman and some of the biggest podcasters on earth like Joe Rogan, Tim Ferriss and now me. So you can guarantee it's legit. I'm not sure if you guys know this, but producing the podcast is purely volunteer and I actually have to pay for studio time and editing. Every dollar we make from this partnership will go towards helping to cover production costs. So it's an awesome way to support your health, support the podcast and young men's mental health all in one. If you're looking for a simpler and cost-effective supplement routine, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Go to athleticgreens.com youngblood. That's athleticgreens.com youngblood. Check it out. So at that time in your life, though, you were still yourself. Yeah. You met your ex-wife. Yeah. 
uh, he ended up having a couple of kids. Yeah. So things were going well. You had a job. I was still functioning. You know, yeah, yeah, still functioning. Um, you know, like I, I, my career out of that sort of progressed and I focused on that. That probably I became Nick, the out of house man rather than Nick who could play sport. Yep. Um, and people will just like that because the first thing is, can I get some cheap shoes or <laughs> people I've never met? So, but you know, like I, I quite enjoyed that because it kind of gave me a bit of an identity and it was, you know, what I wanted. It was a career in sport, but just naturally progressed through that, just not through, you know, chasing a promotion. It just happened because I, I guess I was okay at it. Like sales, you just got to be able to talk to people and provide a solution, and it's pretty easy when you got a brand like that behind you. Yeah. And you were able to do that effectively, even though you yeah. were pretty much always on pills yeah. by that point. Well, I mean, I look back, I never missed a number. I don't know what there, not over my, I was eleven year career, didn't miss a number. Was renowned for being sort of a higher performer, like they did team lineup stuff and all those things. With corporate companies, the feedback was always positive. Mm. Um, Which must have reassured you that your drug use was actually fine because you were yeah. still holding everything together. Yeah, oh, look, I, I would go as far to say at that point in time, outside of maybe my family and my you know, ex-wife knowing, um, no one would have known really. I was able to hide it pretty well. Mm. Yeah. And did your partner know the extent of it? Not when it got out of control, no. No, nah, that's... That's what caused so many issues, yeah. Mm. yeah. So just, how did it start to change you as a person from holding um, it together to not yeah, holding it together? Yeah, so, you know, where you kind of have that fine line of sticking to your morals and and being your true self, that just sort of disappears mm. and your life just becomes about getting your next, next fix and it just dominates your thinking. So therefore, you know, you forget to do stuff um, fortunately, we didn't have kids at that point in time, like it was early sort of on. But down the track, like, I, you're just not there. You're not physically, you're there, but emotionally, yeah, elsewhere. And was that because your prescriptions ran out? Uh, no, that's because I was just taking too much. Yeah, yeah. So as, as it progressed over the years, that's when I started to, you know, doctor shop and gather more prescriptions than I was meant to, which is, you know, it's wrong. It's it's the wrong thing to do, but the alternative was I'd go into withdrawal and that wasn't an option for me. Mm. And so, the more you took, the more you needed to take and ends up becoming unmaintainable. Yeah, correct. I don't even like talking about how much I was taking towards the end because had I have mixed that with any sort of maybe an alcohol-like or... Um, when I, I did mix it at times with, um, with benzos and the, the outcome was scary. Like I, yeah. Like psychotic wise? No, just, uh, driving a car and like with other people in there and just like falling asleep. But me as an addict, you get really defensive. No, I'm not taking it or I've not taken that much. You know, you just lie. You lie upon lie upon lie. You lie to yourself too. You lie to yourself. And that's the most important thing. If you can't be honest with yourself, you're not going to be honest with anyone else. And sadly that, you know, I had what was a happy relationship and, you know, had what I wanted with, we'd build a house, had two beautiful girls. That's all I wanted growing up. And I lost it all because 
of the addiction. It, it still gets, that's the most upsetting thing about it, even now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, now that you've come out of it and you reflect on it and, and what you had there and then see that you were so in the grip of this thing that you just, you can't feel that at the time or you can't appreciate it like you should. And yeah. and even if, even if you could, you're at the mercy of something that you just can't control. Yeah, it's, it's a really hard one. Like I, I don't have any resentment towards my ex at all. Like as we are talking about earlier, like she was trying to help someone who was not able to be helped. The only time I was able to finally get on top of things when I let everything out, that was the only time. To her? Uh, no, well, to the therapist first of all, and then actually telling her, my wife at the time about what had happened when I was younger. But that was that was hard. Because yep. you realised that that was very much connected to... Yeah, and, and even I could see in her, like, she she had felt this guilt, like, she judged me too hard, which, again, I felt guilt. <laughs> like it's, yeah, it's um, back and forth. And yeah, it's back and forth. It's a lot of pain yeah. there and stuff that's... Yeah, it, there is, yeah, yeah. And, you know, the person she married wasn't there. I'd disappeared. Unfortunately, that's that's what's happened. But um, you yeah, know. so you could understand where she was coming from, and the fact that she couldn't have you around when you were in that spot, and then yeah, felt bad because she felt bad and felt bad because of what you've become. But yeah. then over all of that, you're just an addict, and you just need a fix. Pretty much, yeah. yeah, yeah. What attempts were made to help you from their end, or from myself, or from your partner and your, your parents? And um, once they realised oh, like how bad it was, once once it all came out, how bad it really was. Like because I I leaked little bits at times, so addicts quite often refer to like what they call a rock bottom. And I thought I had my first one when I first told everyone, but that was only the start of it, really. Yeah, it spiraled really quickly. Um, I think it was 2017, which is when, you know, she was pregnant with my second and then we had a first kid and that's when it got really out of control over a 12-month period. and Like doubling your use? Yeah. More? more. Yeah. Yeah. Just taking stupid amounts of it. Um, Were you conscious but- of why you were choosing to do that much more? Like what was driving that? I was chasing that, that first okay. euphoric feeling. Yep. Which you never get. You never chasing get. Chasing the dragon, yeah. Yeah, chasing the dragon, yeah. Yeah. So it just became really, because I'd increased that much, if I didn't take close to that much, I'd start to go to withdrawal. Like again. when you go to the next next level, then you can't really go back until Not you quickly, get clean. Yeah, yeah you're yeah. meant to obviously taper off this stuff. And mm. yeah, that wasn't. I mean, and, you know, you make it impossible for doctors to do their job with that, the ones that do know about it, if you're not being honest around what's happened. Yeah. So it wasn't until I finally found, you know, I guess most regular GP. I had about 30 of them. Um, But, you know, the one I, I guess, knew my history and stuff and I told him about it and he was the one that actually pointed me in the right direction for help because, you know, my family tried to help, my wife had tried to help, but it's, it's really hard to find help for addicts. Addict, addicts who aren't ready to be helped as well. Yeah, there was, yeah, there was a, definitely an element of that. Like I, 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 you know, I wanted 
in my mind, I knew I didn't want to be that person. But again, it's just such a strong pull. So yeah, it's, it's you know, I definitely had snippets there where I was like, I'm going to do this, yep. And then... Same old story. Same day, it might be six hours later, the feeling comes back. Yeah. So, you know, that's why... I'd, the hardest decision was to go to rehab. You know, that that was the last straw sort of thing. Um, and that was based on... Actually, my elder brother just said, we've got to do something or we're going to lose him. So did you have a rock-bottom moment specifically? Yeah, I think I remember flying back where my cousin's wedding in uh, Darwin. I just remember being up there the whole weekend chasing, chasing five or six doctor's appointments trying to get medications and just, you know, like was not present the whole weekend and, you know, it has a, should have been an awesome family event, but I took advantage of the fact that um, my wife didn't come to the wedding, so I had this element of freedom. And, you and know, the doctors I, didn't know you up there? Doctors didn't know me. No, I was able to spin to a couple and, and got a result. Then went back and said that the car got broken in. So just lies, lies to get more. Because, you know, they'd give me a box and I'd take that in a day. It's just out of control. And when you did go to rehab, did that work the first time? Rehab worked because it got me clean. Because I, I couldn't get clean myself. You know, um, because of residential rehab, you can't leave, like, um, no mobile phones. Um, I didn't see the kids for six weeks or more. Didn't see anyone for six weeks. That's the rules. And they do that for the right reasons. I've had a couple of relapses since rehab. The biggest one being about three weeks long. The other's just been one-offs. So I would say rehab worked for me. But it's not just rehab. It's the therapy that I've continued there. It's Narcotics Anonymous and the support you get there, which NA, again, it's... <laughs> You've got to have that, comp that comprehensive range of yeah, yeah. resources. You have to, and it, you know, NA is free. <laughs> You can just continue to go. No one ever judges you. It's honestly, it's the best thing an addict could wish for in terms of long-term support. That's my view, like just, you know, because it is very hard to talk to other people that don't understand what you've been through. And, you know, people that are at NA, they're there for a reason. They're there to get well. So I think, you know, there's a lot of stigma attached to particularly drug addiction, which I'm, you know, I'm fairly passionate about. Like I, I, I can get quite pissed off, I guess, when I hear people talk about addicts in a certain way because, as I've learned, you know, probably not 95, 98% of them, they've all had pretty rough, pretty rough lives. A lot of bad shit happen, and it's an illness that you can it is understand. An illness, yeah, yeah, and that's the hardest. Doesn't mean thing you're a bad person. No. Yeah, but you become you become a bad person for all intensive purposes. You certainly collateral like is that yeah, no, mm. no, crime, all that stuff. I understand why. Come you know, it, it just you know, when people get well, that's when I guess people see the difference in like how I was during that, and I look back to I've 
got, got videos of myself then and it's scary yeah it really is scary i'll watch it just thinking what like it's not i don't you. remember that at all that's not me yeah yeah and you had bloody cancer as well yeah <laughs> to make that as worse it didn't help I, I mean on top of all the hip stuff um yeah like uh 2017 um when my use was bad i, I had two seizures which i was convinced was due to the use of but i told the doctors how much i said that they're not opioids aren't related to seizures like that's what they told me and the scans confirmed lesions on my brain from something and so i got diagnosed with epilepsy first of all I had two grand mal seizures and second one was in front of my daughter which you know that traumatic has yeah. definitely affected her like she was only three or four at the time but she remembers it mm. um and the thing with the seizure is you you know it's coming like got after the first one the second one i was like i knew it was coming like i said to my wife i'm gonna have a seizure like and then um yeah bang straight away and then yeah quite what you see on tv or doco it's like they're pretty the grandma ones are the full body convulsing and yeah not not pleasant um but fortunately i was you know they just medicate that and that keeps it under control um but yeah then is it 2018 yeah i was at work got a sharp really sharp pain in my where my appendix is straight away i was like it's appendicitis like you just you know it was bad enough pain that you're like that's not a pain stomach ache or anything uh managed to get from harbour town to flinders in sort of maybe two hours operated within three hours and in that space of time it nearly burst like three hours it nearly burst which they were they didn't say anything at the time but you know a week later i went back i said look something's not right i just don't feel right and then they actually had biopsy results whether the, i'm not sure whether they got them just when i was there or they were waiting for me to come back or something but that's when they found the cancer yeah they yeah. said you know when you're in an emergency usually you have to wait for hours like within 10 minutes i had three doctors in there and something's up i just went what like sums up and i was there by myself so i took myself up there because you know wife was home with six month old and a three-year-old mm. so i said look i'll just go sort this out because i just i could feel something was wrong and i mean i was right <laughs> but i just wasn't expecting it you know you just had appendicitis i had it taken out i thought maybe there's you know infection infect, or something. yeah something like that mm. and um unfortunately it wasn't but in saying that, it saved my life. Yeah. How did you deal with all that at once? So at that time, I wasn't. I was on a maintenance program, so I didn't turn to painkillers. Like it wasn't. That wasn't an option. That was good. <laughs> yeah, that was a win actually. Uh, how did I deal with it? Honestly, I don't know. I, I. It's kind of a bit of a blur. Like I just. It's survival mode, I guess. Like. First of all. They didn't know how bad it was that was you know so from when i went up there a week later it was two and a half to three weeks before they could tell me how bad it actually was that was the worst part because i didn't know if it was a little tumor or if it was terminal or what was going on and it was due to the type of cancer it was and it had spread enough that it had gone in my bowel they knew that much and strangely enough the testing for it only gets done in tasmania like of all places 
So it takes longer. It took ages. Yeah. But it was just stage two. Or stage, stage, stage two. Yeah, that was. It, no, it was just stage two, um, luckily. Yeah. Had I not got the appendicitis, it could have sat there because the type of tumor it was doesn't normally present symptoms until it's too late, which I was told after all the treatment. I didn't get told that straight up, obviously, because you just cheat yourself. But, yeah. Um, so it wasn't too late. Then you had to go through chemo. You know, yeah, you're still... I had, I had surgery first they took the whole tumor out so and removed a portion of my bowel which that came with you know there's complications that can come with that you can end up with a bag it's like a 30 yeah. percent chance which again as a young guy you don't really want to go through yeah. that but yeah managed to go through chemo i guess what keeps you going through that is seeing some of the people like when you sit there having natural chemo like people that have been doing it for five years straight like that's what gives you a bit of strength i guess and was there one and, one and to be kids. there for your daughters yeah 100 percent. yeah just wanted yeah yeah like i wanted to stay wanted life to stay as normal as it could even though i was going through something that was horrific and you're still working then too yeah as much as i could yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah you carry a lot on your shoulders man yeah yeah like it i guess there was even some medications that involved with the chemo that a little bit habit forming. So there was another small issue there, but not as bad as, you know, the opioid stuff. But that, again, that's just my brain looking for that quick, mm, mm. quick fix to not have to deal with all this stuff at once. And obviously you separated from your wife and all this happened and you had to keep yourself going while you sort of put yourself back together over a, a pretty yeah. long period of time to, yeah. to a point where, now you know you seem like you're pretty down to earth and yeah yeah no i am like i i had another small scare only uh, in september last year which was based off the back of a one day relapse it wasn't an overdose as such but um I, i've since found out chemo damages your organs and my liver and kidneys just for whatever they just started shutting down Jeez. so i rang Mum and dad, and they, I said, better come down. Like, I'm not, not well. Um, like, I was just, I just, all I wanted to do was sleep. Like, I was just, but my body was just shutting down. And I got to the point where, like, they were keeping on me. I like, was struggling to breathe, and then they rang the ambo. Um, that got very serious quickly. Got, it did, yeah. yeah. Another 12 hours unattended. The, the doctor flat out said that it would have been too late. Mm. Um, so it was a massive scare, that one. I wasn't like I guess for my, all my family they thought I was full back into mm. addiction, which that's a hard thing. Like it wasn't that; it was just one weak moment. But every time you're trying to rebuild the trust, and you know, yeah, you can do 150 good things, and then you even do one bad, and then bang, which yeah. I get. Like it, I'd, I'd be so much bang. damage being done, it's, but it, it doesn't mean it's unredeemable. You know, no, and, no. and someone who who's done bad things, who's ashamed of where you've been at certain points, doesn't mean you. You're not a good person. You can't be a good person no, again. Right. You can't be a good dad, yeah. you know, and you get those runs back on the board and yeah. you, you bring yourself back. 100%. And yeah. that's, you know, like I've got a poem, I've got my mirror. And through addiction, I, I've found it really hard to even look at myself in the mirror, like, which is a really interesting metaphor, I guess, around that being honest with yourself. And I've since had this poem. It's, it's called The Man in the Mirror, and it's really about, like, can you look at yourself in the mirror 
first thing in the morning at the end of the day and just say, look, have you been honest throughout the day? And if I pick up any moments where I haven't been, that's when things can get can get bad for me. So just having that brutal honesty with myself and with my support I've got through NA, that's that's what's keeping me clean. It's a, it is a daily, um, I don't like calling it a battle, but it, it's a disease as we discussed earlier, but I'm at the right end of it. You know, I've, I've seen the worst of it. I, I don't want to go back. I, I know that. I just, I really don't want to go back. And, you know, I'm getting to a point now where I'm, I'm well enough that I can help others as well. I've always been one of those people that I like to help others, like, but that's so, so I don't have to deal with what I'm dealing with. Deflecting. Deflect, yeah. It's, yeah, massive deflecting. But, you know, I, it's the first time in a long time I feel I'm in a space I can actually do that. Um, I've still got to be very careful with it. But, yeah, that's sort of, I, I guess, you know, a positive that can, and I, I've, I've spoken to people about this. Like I'm, I'm pretty open about the whole experience. Yeah. Like it's, it hasn't been easy. It's, um, you know, I, mean, I remember work, walking to rehab and just that moment, just thinking, my life's just changed like dramatically. Um, and it was for the better, but at the time I was just so full of shame and guilt and, you know, chickens come home to regret. Rest. Yeah. Yeah. So all those emotions, you go into an environment which is just foreign and then, yeah, the therapist said, just get it out of you, which is, I can look back now and laugh, but there was some, you know, stuff that goes on <laughs> in group therapy. I think I nearly threw a chair through the window one day, Yeah, you know, but it was just dealing with all these emotions. You're that, angry at yourself yeah, right, and yeah, everything that angry, happened to you. Yeah, angry at stuff that had happened and just letting that out. Yeah. But now you can look in the mirror. I can, yeah. And, you know, I'm, I wake up most days pretty happy. Wake up. I'm not really a morning person, which doesn't help, but, you know, <laughs> I, I, I believe my, you know, um, my ex is, uh, she's got a lot more trust in me with the kids. Um, she still has, you know, moments where it is hard. Like if I look a bit tired or something, she might suspect, but, you know, I guess. I've given up trying to convince her or other people that I'm clean yeah. because... Actions speak louder than words. They do, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I'm back working um, and have been for a while. But, yeah, I guess it's only like you're sitting here talking about now and one real positive thing is my resilience, my resilience that I've built over the years through everything I've been through. Oh, I see that as a positive thing. No, you're a tough bastard to still be here <laughs> after all that. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I find it hard to take compliments. Still, but yeah, there's I'd, plenty who wouldn't be after. Yeah, half of that. Yeah, and yeah. that's what I I have to accept. That you know, mm. it's been a bit of a journey, and most people don't go through half of that in their lifetime. What do you want yeah. people to take away from your story? I mean, just around the whole addiction piece, it's. It, the biggest thing is just asking for help. And there's people that will be right in the midst of active and they don't want to hear it. But just knowing there is help out there and it doesn't have to be rehab. There's NA, there's therapy, there's a lot of different options you can go to, but there is help out there. So just all you have to do is just reach out, get on the internet, 
do something. The important thing is, as I mentioned before, a lot of it you don't have to pay for, which, yeah, you know, that's pretty important for some people that aren't working or in active, et cetera. But, yeah, I guess the other thing is just no matter what you go through, if you get through and survive, like, you know, nothing's irreparable, I guess. Um, my biggest focus has just been, you know, a good a good dad. I want my girls to be proud of me and I don't want them just to think of me as, you know, the sick dad sort of thing. And I can see in their behaviour around me when I'm well because it rubs off on little kids. Yeah, it's been a bit of an adventure so far, fair to say, but yeah. Well, you're a lot, you're a lot more than just the... The sick dad, mate. Yeah, you should no, be proud thanks, of yourself. Yeah, I, yeah, I can actually take those compliments now. Like it's taken a lot of work to get there, um, but no, I, I do appreciate it. And you know, I just want to be able to help wherever I can with this sort of stuff going forward. Because um, it is, it can be a very lonely, lonely place. Um, but that's like any mental health, I guess. That's why we talk about it. That's the best thing to do, mate, and um, good on you for what you're doing. I'm glad I've made the time to come and have a chat, and I've been wanting to do it for a long time, so appreciate you uh, giving me the space but and providing space for others too, mate. It's good. Thanks, Nick. Good, mate. Cheers. That's it for this episode. If you like what we're doing, please jump on board with our mental health movement by following Young Blood Men's Mental Health on Instagram and Young Blood Mental Health on TikTok. If you're already following, we'd love you to get more involved. Look out for our new weekly question time videos we've just started doing and leave a comment to make yourself part of the conversation. Every podcast episode is recorded in professional quality video and they're all up on our Young Blood Men's Mental Health YouTube channel, so bless us with a subscription. And most importantly, please share the show with anyone in your life who needs to know they're not alone. We're all in this together. Catch you next time.